BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Listening to the news these days often reminds me of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The cognitive bias in which people think they know more than they actually do. This illusory sense of superiority. Just because you're an expert in one topic does not mean that you're an expert in all topics. And in fact, the layperson's view of the Dunning-Kruger effect is often one in which the less you know, the more confident you are that what you know is actually correct. It's essentially a failure of metacognition, understanding your own thought processes. And as we all have maybe perhaps a little bit more time to reflect on how we think these days, I thought it might be interesting to go back to the source and find out if there are any updates that we should be thinking about when considering the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I reached out to David Dunning. He's an American social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. He is also a professor emeritus from Cornell University. He's been working in the field of psychology for many decades. And while his 1999 study, co-authored with Justin Kruger, is perhaps what he's best known for, he, of course, is an expert in all types of metacognition. David Dunning, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's a pleasure. It's so great to have you on our show at this time. So in some ways, so much of your work now is just being on display. Uh, So I want to start with the sort of nidus of the idea that you had for your 1999 very famous paper. Can you uh, take us back to what was going on then and what led you and Justin to uh, embark on this study? Well, sure. I think we have to go back to the the mid-90s. Uh, when I just had a question. Uh, Now, a lot of my work has to do with uh, uh, misunderstandings about the self, and in particular, how people tend to overestimate themselves, overrate themselves. And uh, one of the things I noticed just in life, in terms of people walking into my office or seeing people call into C-SPAN, let's say, uh, on the television or going to faculty meetings or whatever, whatever setting, is often people would say things that were outrageous, that were clearly wrong, but they seemed to have utmost confidence in what they were saying. And uh, it, it just became something that was always in the back of my mind, which was, don't people have any inkling that what they're saying is outrageous? 
So one day Justin walked into my office, said he wanted to do work with me. And I said, well, I have this question I've always wanted to uh, take a look at. And it was basically when people get things wrong, uh, when they say something uh, that is not knowledge, uh, it may sound like knowledge, but it is not knowledge. Did they know that what they were saying uh, was mistaken or wrong or suboptimal or dysfunctional? And so we just decided to find out what poor performers thought about themselves. Um, and what we discovered is poor performers thought they were doing just fine. And so what what made you just choose the domains that you wanted to look at? I mean, I, you know, from, from the way that you describe that question and sort of like, I think often how the Dunning-Kruger effect has been used to explain behavior, it's really about someone explaining something to someone else. But the original study really looks at a lot of other kinds of domains. Well, that's right. I mean, we looked at humor. Uh, we looked at uh, grammar, uh, grammar ability, and we looked at logical reasoning ability. Uh, and the reason we did that is, except for the humor aspect, uh, we wanted to test uh, students, that were, those were our original uh, subjects, on skills they should know because they're students. So they should know grammar and they should know logical re reasoning. That is, we wanted to give people a fair shot. If we had walked in and said, okay, we want you to, you know, fix a, a slant six a car engine, that would have been unfair. And so that's what led us to choose those domains. It was also the case that those were areas where there was a clear answer. So we didn't want to get grief about people saying, well, your measure of accuracy is wrong. Uh, so that's where we went. And humor, uh, we added because we want to do something on the social end. And we felt we could figure out what was it. So the task was telling which jokes were funny and which ones weren't. And we felt that if we asked an expert panel of working uh, comedians, which ones were funny or which ones weren't, uh, we were, uh, we, we knew what accuracy was. We knew what good judgment was. So that's where we focus in, in on our original work. We gave people a fair shot where there was a correct answer. There are a lot of misinterpretations of the original study, a lot of over-interpretations of it. So can you give our listeners kind of like a, an overview of, of what you felt that study showed and without, you know, going further along and, and then we can talk about what your later work, uh, you know, followed up on? Sure. What the original studies did was track how much perceived performance tracked actual performance. And in particular, we were looking at the bottom end and what did bottom performers think of their performance? And uh, to put it in, again, terms that students would understand, students who were performing in our studies in the 12th or the 13th percentile thought they were performing in the 60th, 65th, 70th percentile on average. So they were wildly overestimating how uh, well they were doing. And a lot of different measures are overestimating themselves. Now, they aren't as confident as top performers they're somewhat less confident, but not by much. And there are a number of misunderstandings people have about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is delicious because people seem to be unaware of the misunderstandings they have of what we found or what we argued. Uh, people have talked about the 1999 study and given horrific renditions of what we actually said. Uh, we did not say that the incompetent were the most confident people. Uh, occasionally, that happens, that pops up in data, but it's only occasionally. There are some people at the bottom who think they're doing extremely well. Uh, so some people really have no insight into how poorly they're performing or how corrupted their expertise is. That's one misunderstanding. What's interesting, though, is a second misunderstanding that's cropped up in recent years, which if you Google images associated with Dunning-Kruger effect, the last time I looked, 
17 out of the first 20 images you see are something we never studied. And it has to do with, uh, not with poor performance, it has to do with uh, beginners or not having experience. Uh, that is, uh, people construe the Dunning-Kruger effect to be at the very beginning, uh, you know that you don't know, but soon you think you do know, and there's an explosion of confidence that comes early on when you take on a new task that far outstrips how well you're really doing. And it, people have gone so far as to call that Mount Stupid, which leads to the plane of despair when you realize maybe you don't have it. Uh, and then later on, you achieve the slope of enlightenment once you have actually achieved competence. Now, we didn't study all that. And uh, it's wrong, number one. Uh, but it's real sin, number two, is that it's more elaborate, more interesting than what we did. Uh, though I do have to admit, in the past two years, we did publish a series of studies showing that that curve actually does exist if you put people on a brand new task. That is, we thought the only way we could reconcile um, the misunderstanding of the Dunning-Kruger effect was to, to steal the idea and see if it worked. Yeah, so so I want to tell us about that, because uh, that... <laughs> It's one of the things I, I find really fascinating, especially in this era where, you know, there we have a reproducibility crisis in science and in particular in social psychology. And so, you know, it made me wonder if your original study was one of the studies that was targeted for uh, attempts to replicate and, you know, how, how that all worked out. But uh, before we get to that question, can you tell us a little bit about some of these more recent studies that you um, undertook in order to investigate whether this pattern actually held? Well, sure. What we did is uh, we uh, brought in subjects or uh, got to them remotely and basically said, okay, we're going to give you a task. Um, uh, it's a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, there are zombies roaming everywhere, and you've got to diagnose whether this person is uh, vulnerable to becoming two different types of zombies or, stay, or they're going to stay healthy. You're going to see uh, 60 patients, and we'll give you complete feedback. Um, once you make your diagnosis. But gee, your supervisor's been called to the CDC, and so you're on your own. you got to learn this on your own. And so uh, people really attacked this. They were really into it. Uh, I, uh, this study has the least amount of people quitting in the middle that I've ever had. And uh, they do get better as they go on with the, the 60 patients. But you do see that curve. That is, p uh, people start out appropriately, uh, appropriately unconfident in their ability to diagnose zombies. That's good. Uh, I don't think many people in their real life have had experience diagnosing zombies, uh, no matter how many episodes of Walking Dead they've seen. But after just about 10 or 15 patients, they think they've got it down. Uh, they don't. They begin to realize this. And so their confidence levels off, but at the end, they start getting more confident at the, uh, at the very end of the experiment. They're always overestimating themselves, but at least they're giving confidence estimates that are more appropriate given their improved performance. Uh, so, and uh, really what's going on in these studies, what we've uh, found out is people give too much weight to initial successes. Initial successes are noisy. Uh, they're as much to do about luck as they are about whatever theory you have in your head. But people think their theory is right. They've got it down. Uh, they don't wait to really see all the results. And as a consequence, they become much uh, well overconfident relative to how well they're actually performing. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that there's like an interface here with the confirmation bias. It's like because we sort of, you know, have this tendency to confirm our beliefs, if we're right, if, you know, after learning a couple of, you know, minor things, then we start to think, okay, now I got this. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that is, uh, people do approach this with a confirmatory slant. 
And, uh, you know, your, your hypothesis may be confirmed, A, because you're right, or B, because you're lucky and the world is throwing you information uh, that actually turns out to be a red herring, tends to be uh, misleading. But people, ah, take that as evidence. What people don't do is they don't seek out disconfirmatory evidence. Um, that's, that's well established. And in fact, that's one of the secrets of science. Um, if you take a look at the way that science and scientists really have set up the task, it really is more, it can, it's really about disconfirmation rather than confirmation. Uh, that is, we seek data and, the, and we have to seek data in a way that our ideas can be wrong. And I found the world is very efficient at shooting down wrong ideas that I have. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, did you did the study come under any kind of scrutiny during the reproducibility? Or I guess we're still in the middle of the reproducibility crisis. And and how did it fare? And and you know, give us a little bit of background there. Well, uh, it hasn't really come under any uh, replicability uh, critiques. Um, that is, in fact, uh, one time someone threw up something on Twitter saying, hey, which uh, findings do you think are actually solid out there? And out of about 120 responses, five people said the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I, I was happy about. Uh, it's only intuition, so I'm not that happy, uh, but I'm happy about that. Um, if it has uh, received criticism, uh, the criticism tends to be that this is all a statistical artifact. Uh, that is, uh, people at the bottom uh, overestimate themselves simply because there's a lack of correlation between how you think about yourself and how you really do. So if you take a look at people at the bottom, uh, because there's a lack of perfect correlation, well, perception is going to filter back up to the mean, regression to the mean. And so all we're doing is taking a well-known statistical artifact and labeling it as something that's psychologically real. Uh, the issue with that uh, counter-explanation, however, is that we actually have tested quite extensively to see if it is purely just regression to the mean. And our data don't show that. And as well, um, e there are some ways you can argue regression to the mean. I won't get into it, but it really gets into the weeds that uh, if you make that form of argument, really all you're doing is you're redescribing the phenomenon. You're not um, counter-arguing the phenomenon. So um, that critique has been going on uh, forever, but uh, we pretty much have a lot of data that discounts it. It's been 20 years since the initial paper was published, and uh, the world has changed a lot, uh, you know, even more so in the past couple of weeks. But let's, you know, put that on hold for a minute. And just t can you tell me a little bit about how the internet and the availability of information has, uh, has interacted with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Has it become stronger as like now all of a sudden anybody with Google is an expert? Um, have, you, have you done any studies of, of sort of the effect that the internet and information accessibility has had on the uh, extent of the effect? Uh, we haven't looked at the internet uh, specifically simply because uh, I have no expertise about, uh, for example, scraping data off the internet and tracking how much people might be uh, prone to the Dunning-Kruger effect given how much information that they've looked at. We've been looking at currently um, a more specific issue, though, which is related, which is when you are taking a look at information, in particular uh, science headlines or science um, tweets, for example, uh, are people more likely to be gullible in what they're reading? That is, they see false things and think they're true, or are they more likely to be skeptical? That is, they see a true thing and they discount it as false. 
And in in our studies, um, what we found is that people think they're too skeptical. That that's the overarching idea they have about themselves. But when they're reading stuff and saying, "Yeah, this is true. This is false," uh, they're clearly gullible. Uh, much more likely to accept false things as true. And that's true even if we take the same story and use the original headline and then flip it so the headline is now the exact reverse. If we give half our subjects the original headline, half the subjects the exact reverse, what we find is the majority in each case uh, think the story is true. So, and that goes back to this idea of confirmatory bias. I mean, um, we see something, it seems plausible, we accept it as true because we're looking for uh, what could be true about it as opposed to what could be false about it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's kind of frightening because I feel like, at least in the U.S., we are living in an era where we are in filter bubbles. So, you know, it's really easy to, to surround yourself with information that is confirmatory to your beliefs. Uh, and so and, and that also means that there is a huge divide, uh, you know, often across political lines of people getting very different information. Um, how do you think that that this is a pro- like, is this, a, is this a problem that we can somehow, you know, get over? Is there anything that your work can can tell us about what the responsibilities might be of the media or, you know, of each individual uh, to try to mitigate this situation? Uh, it is a good question. I mean, uh, I think one way to think about it conceptually, whether we're talking about the internet or any other area in life, is uh, do we have someone or something that's a Greek chorus, which is critiquing the ideas uh, or the beliefs that we have? Uh, someone in the background who's sort of singing to you what possibly could be wrong? Um, or uh, are we just looking at, at things that uh, agree with or are neutral to what we think? Now, in a lot of organizations, and this is particularly true in medicine, um, what you have is you often have people who are designated to be the devil's advocate, to be the naysayer, to come up with reasons why your thinking or your diagnosis might be incorrect. Now, it's unpleasant. It's awkward. Um, it's, um, uh, a little annoying, but, uh, it often is the way having dissent in our life 
is a way to put a check on uh, beliefs that actually might be misbeliefs. So what would you recommend that people do to get that Greek chorus going? You know, that's an interesting question, um, because one of the issues is, is you don't just want to, if, you, if there are, for example, a certain set of blogs that you look at, let's say politically, you don't want to dive into the opposing uh, blogs from the other side, because they're carrying on a dialogue that is happening at uh, the high school level. And if you enter into their society, you're only going to be in third grade. So it's just going to look crazy to you. So... Um, I'd actually I recommend a little bit more of uh, human interaction. Uh, it is the case that uh, I, we're better off uh, carrying um, conversations, uh, especially ones that are about where things are uh, in dispute one on one than we are over the internet. I, basically, what happens on the internet is all the things we automatically do when we're one in one with another person to make sure the relationship is uh, repaired or repairing or is polite uh, just doesn't happen on the internet. And you can immediately uh, see or know of uh, instances of this that we've all encountered. So I'd actually recommend talking to people and I'd recommend talking to people in actual face-to-face conversation. That is potentially the best way to find out you may you may want to take a look at internet sources that disagree with you, but remember the third grade high school problem that uh, to the extent that we're all in filtered bubbles, we won't understand the assumptions or the language of the other bubble. Uh, so we won't appreciate it. We won't understand um, the evidence for it. Uh, and the problem is the first idea that comes to your mind is, wow, that's crazy. You want to avoid that. So now that the effect has been uh, really very well known, I think, at least in uh, the circles of people who are interested in metacognition and in sort of, you know, thinking about how we think, uh, have you seen any evidence of it changing people's behaviors in, say, places like faculty meetings or um, elsewhere where, you know, people really should know better? I'm going to say the answer is no, uh, simply because the other misconception people have of the Dunning-Kruger effect is is that people think it's about other people and not themselves. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, uh, very occasionally I get emails from people asking me, can you take it all back? Because we're having a debate and sooner or later, at the end, someone will start accusing the other person of the Dunning-Kruger effect and then the whole thing just blows up. Um, so it's a, a second Godwin's law for those who, who know Godwin's law. But I think life would be better if we remember this is something about each of us. It's not about them, uh, for example. Now, there have been some instructors, though, have, who, at least in educational settings, have started to think through what does this mean for education? Um, because students may not know what they don't know uh, when they're about to take an exam or, for example, about to begin their internship in a hospital clinic. So um, their people are being given, for lack of a better term, competency challenges, uh, which point out to them what they're strong in and what they're weak in. But that has to be coupled with a second item, which is if if a weakness is pointed out, you have to ask the person, uh, what plan do they have to uh, get over that weakness? Uh, How do they plan to get rid of it? What happens if you don't ask that question? Uh, basically say, okay, I've remembered that. <laughs> then, uh, and then they don't act on it. That is the, one of the emerging principles in, in social psychology is that if you want a person to actually do something, you really do want them to uh, articulate a plan about how they're going to do it 
or they may put it in their head, geez, someday I'm going to do something about that. And then they don't do anything about that. And that part of the plan has to be, when are you going to do it? Sort of what's the event? What's the time? What's the deadline that's going to uh, spark you into, a, into action? That, that has to be there. So, uh, I mean, there are two issues about um, errors and biases and judgment. The first is we uh, may know about them in abstract, but we don't know when we're actually living through them uh, on a day-to-day basis. We, we don't recognize, gee, confirmation bias is relevant here, or the Dunning-Kruger effect might be relevant here. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, not really thinking through uh, an action plan for how you're going to deal with potential errors and biases that might be important to avoid. I mean, I think that's what's wonderful about the scientific method is that it has these these items already built in, right? I mean, the whole point of it is, yeah, is, is to get around these uh, fallible human cognitive traits. So, this was a, a study that uh, was it was it more more sort of successful and 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 widely uh, cited than you anticipated and sort of where do you go from there in terms of your career I, I don't know that you might you know I don't I, I you know question for you I mean did you set out to build a career you know on this question or did this somehow cause a pivot for you Well, it's causing a pivot. That is. Um... Uh, we did the study. Uh, I'm on record for saying I'm actually floored that it got published because it was didn't fit the usual themes in social psychology at the time, but it was published in a social psychological journal. Uh, and then it famously was a study that I sort of looked at, and it got you know press at the beginning, but I didn't know how to follow up on it. I really didn't know what to do with it. Um, and, uh, so I actually pivoted away to some other questions, uh, mostly having to do with active self-deception, motivated reasoning, uh, and in particular, how our vision, uh, for example, what we actually see in the physical environment is influenced by our desires and our fears. And so that, that occupied me for about a decade. And, and then the world kept coming back and asking, well, what about this study over here from 1999? And by then I'd gotten mature enough uh, to figure out what are the ways to uh, follow up on it. Uh, I should have thought about these ideas years sooner. Uh, And that's currently what we're doing now. So I'm actually pivoting back to it simply because the world has told me, we want to know more about this ignorance thing. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I I think it it seems to me at least like, so I've been uh, a faculty member now teaching university students for about a decade. And I I do, I think, see a shift in, you know, in the beginning, I really felt like they they really did see me as an authority. Um, They believe what I said, even, you know, for better or for worse, right? I mean, I, you know, make mistakes, just like anyone else does. Um, and, And now I find that there is more of a kind of sense that, you know, I am there to shepherd them through the information, but I'm not necessarily the final source. Uh, and and so, you know, I wondered whether that has also been something that you've observed in your own teaching or, you know, whether this, you know, sort of un- do people understand better that they're, I mean, I, I you know, I think undergraduate students probably are, are um, coming to uh, or being exposed to the Daniel Kruger effect for the first time, probably in 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 your classes or you know earlier in their career. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about you know sort of what the responsibility now is for university educators and um, you know how we should in- enable our students to become better critical thinkers? Uh, it's an interesting uh, question because it, it is the case. What I find with undergraduates is that. Um, uh, they're they're very young and they haven't ex- 
experienced um, dealing with the Dunning-Kruger effect yet. So interestingly, they're an audience that uh, they understand it more of an academic concept as opposed to something that they're dealing with on a a day-to-day basis, uh, which I find interesting. Um, that you have to live a little before you kind of go, oh, now I get it. Um, Oh, I get it about other people not getting it. Uh, Or excuse me, oh, I didn't get that. You start to have those experiences. But I do think that especially uh, because the internet, actually the truth is out there. Um, There is good information out there. The question is finding it and then using it for the conduct of your own uh, career, uh, craft, or life. And I think it really does do a premium on uh, focusing on critical reasoning. Now, critical reasoning has always bet people talk about that being the uh, end-all, be-all, the final goal of uh, a good education, particularly uh, uh, an education that involves uh, uh, college or beyond. And um, But I think now we're in a situation where we really, really have to be focusing more on uh, those skills uh, for, and that involves uh, allow, giving people the problem and then having them sort of fumble around and figure out how to solve it rather than giving them the template or the algorithm uh, for how to solve it. Uh, and so, for example, I don't know, how, um, a few years ago when I dipped into the medical literature, there was work on problem-based learning where you just threw a case at medical students and had them try to figure out what was going on. I think in general in education, it would be terrific to do that more simply because if you take a look at the types of jobs and the types of skills that people talk about that are going to be placed in a premium in the 21st century, they all do involve um, making your way through and navigating successfully through a more ill-defined world, uh, figuring out what the right problem is, figuring out how do you address it knowing when you have a correct solution about it, knowing when you have to turn to another person for advice. Um, metacognition, which is evaluating your thinking and regulating your thinking, that's the skill. There's going to be more of a premium placed on that simply because of uh, the types of work, the types of careers that are going to feature more prominently in the 21st century. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the intersection between your work on motivated reasoning and how um, even our what we perceive, what we subjectively experience, uh, even in, in perception, is affected by our goals and uh, you know our current state, and and how that you know interfaces with uh, all of this information now that we're getting currently in a time where a lot of us ha- are experiencing heightened anxiety. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how anxiety in particular, but highly emotional states in general, uh, affect are, you know, the way that we process information or the way that we think about the world or even our own competencies? And is it is it like a special case when you're in a highly emotional state? Um, you know, do we compensate more and then, you know, try to build up a self-confidence about our abilities or or, or do we not? Is it the opposite? Uh, I think the, the way to describe motivated reasoning, uh, that is uh, favoring certain conclusions uh, over other conclusions, uh, features the most uh, when we're dealing with threat. Uh, that is, it's not the case that everybody is looking around for information that makes them uh, ultimately conclude they're the bestest, most wonderful, most lovable person out there. Um, people engage in motivated reasoning when they're facing the threat, when they're facing uh, fear, when their pet theories uh, are being called into question. So um, ex- it really is all about anxiety, and the anxiety can be very low level. You don't even feel it all the way to 
uh, obvious situations that would produce an, a palpable anxiety uh, in anybody. Uh, I think uh, taking a deep breath certainly helps. Uh, waiting some time before you make a decision or reach a conclusion and not being rash is paramount. But know that if you're worried about fooling yourself, it's exactly in those situations that make us, makes us anxious, uh, where we're going to be most likely to fool ourselves. And so uh, waiting for the anxiety to pass, sometimes you can, sometimes you're walking in the wood and the bear shows up. But if you can uh, wait a little while before you act, that at least helps with the emotional uh, dynamics of it. What are you going to work on next? It has this whole uh, situation with quarantining and, and what's going on in the world changed where, where you think your work might go? Uh, or do you already have work that you want to continue on and, um, you know, keep working at it? Oh, uh, I think uh, events in the world have uh, certainly highlighted the fact that uh, whatever direction I was in, well, that's the direction to go. Uh, what it's added is uh, my work uh, usually is about how people evaluate themselves. And what events uh, that have overtaken us, what they've suggested, and this has been apparent for a few years now, is that a critical skill is knowing how to recognize and deal with uh, information and misinformation and disinformation that's coming from the world. So in some sense, what I'm really focusing in on is people's beliefs and people's skill in being able to recognize and parry misinformation. And uh, that isn't much of a swerve for me, given uh, all this work on not knowing whether you are in the know or not. So uh, that's where I'm currently uh, uh, focusing. David Dunning, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. This has been fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. These days, we could really use your support. And if you don't have any spare change, then perhaps you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review. That's really helpful too. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.